Well, good morning. The pun meister, huh? I'm just glad that, you know, I can make a contribution to North Wake. We all have our gifts, right? Uh, I'll try to not subject you all to any punishment today, though. So, some of you, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Cannot, cannot help myself. Uh, first of all, let me just wish everyone uh, a, a happy Mother's Day. I know you all think that your moms and wives are the most special moms and wives out there, and I know that they are. Uh, but for me today, Mother's Day is actually doubly special for, for me. First of all, this is my wife's first Mother's Day with at least a child, you know, here, like present in the world. Uh, he was preparing to make his debut at this time last year, and she was in the first service. And in, in this service, my mom is here from Georgia. So thanks, Mom, for being here. She's, she's hanging out with us, and this makes her first Mother's Day as a grandma. So all you grandparents, you know, you know how, how exciting Exciting that is. Um, and just as I was sitting watching uh, baby dedication this morning, uh, I'm, I'm reminded that I am a recipient of faithful parenting. And moms and dads, you have such a tremendous job before you. And, and it is so crucial that we point our children to Christ. And so I want you to know that we are all thankful, uh, thankful for you. I'm also aware that for, for many women, Mother's Day can be a difficult and painful day. And if, if that's you today, I would just want to say that my heart goes out to you. And more importantly, the heart of our, our Savior, Jesus, goes out to you. And I think our passage today will speak great words of encouragement to you. Uh, so with that in mind, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 today. And so let me read this for us, and then we'll, we'll um, pray together. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful that you have given us your word and that you have given us your son. Help us see him better today, that we might love him and hold fast to him. And it is through him we pray with confidence. Amen. Uh, there was a poll done a few years back, a, a nationwide Harris poll of over a thousand adults. And this poll was conducted to see what people thought, which, which jobs 
were the most uh, helpful, heroic, or prestigious. So you might want to check and see if you made the list here. Uh, The occupations that got the most votes were firefighters at 57%, so you came in at the top, uh, scientists at 56%, doctors at 53%, and then nurses and teachers were tied at 52%. And if you didn't make that list, maybe you made the list which garnered the fewest votes for a most prestigious profession, and these would be bankers at 15%, tied with accountants and actors, interestingly, at 15%, and then stockbrokers also at 10%, and then real estate agents and brokers at uh, 6%. I don't know what's up with the hate on real estate agents. We really liked ours, uh, so she was very helpful. Um, Now, of course, when I'm reading this study, I'm curious where pastors and priests and clergy members are going to fall on the list, and it looks like we come in at about 40% of the votes. So not at the top, but not at the bottom, so, so that's good. Uh, but in, in most ancient cultures, and even in many cultures today, the priest is the most prestigious and important person in the community. Now, why would, why would that be? Well, if you think about it, the priest typically is the one making sure that you are in good with the god or goddess of that religion. And so most religions around the world throughout history, if you look into it, you'll find that everyone from ancient Egyptians to Hindus to Greeks, Romans, uh, ancient Israelites, they all have had a mediator type person to represent people to the divine, usually offering sacrifices or gifts on their behalf and and so forth. Uh, But for many of us who identify as American Protestants, Uh, The whole concept of needing a priest feels a bit foreign and maybe even irrelevant and unnecessary to us. Um, Theologian Michael Reeves writes about this saying, uh, Fighting in the Protestant Reformation for the priesthood of all believers, that no men or women on earth stand as mediators between us and God, we have grown wary of the very word priest. The word can conjure in our minds a strange and frumpy creature dressed in the drawing room curtains. This guy's from Britain. Can you tell by the way he he talks? Um, But a common and unnecessary side effect of this priestophobia is that we have come to think that there is no mediator between us and God. Or if there is one, it's me. I stand on my own before God. And then the anxiety really kicks in. You see, deep down... Uh, people seem to universally recognize that we need some kind of mediation if we are going to stand before God in judgment without being totally consumed. Uh, deep down, the, the thought of standing before God unmediated, exposed for who we really are is kind of like preparing to face an oncoming tsunami with an umbrella. just probably isn't going to go well. So uh, last week, Joey Kraft from Restoration Church in Washington, D.C. was here with us to teach uh, the end of Hebrews chapter 4, the last, the last three verses of that passage. And Joey did a great job. If you were gone last week, I would strongly encourage you to pick up a CD in the lobby or go online and, and listen to, to that message. But he taught us that Jesus is our supreme and sympathetic high priest. And then this passage today, our section, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, 
is going to push that idea a little bit further. And it's going to tell us not just that Jesus is our high priest, but it's going to tell us why he is qualified to be so. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I mean, why, why Jesus? Like, what makes him so great? What makes him so special? What makes him qualified to be the mediator between humanity and God? What makes him qualified to be the middleman and not something or, or someone else? And you'll actually see, as we continue through uh, our series on the book of Hebrews, that this argument that Jesus is qualified to be our great high priest makes up the majority of, of the book. So obviously, it's very important to our author, and it's very important to his first readers. Most likely, they were in the position of potentially jeopardizing and jettisoning their faith in Christ to return back to their ancient system of, of Jewish priests and sacrifices. And so the author is warning them and us to not turn back to less sure, less perfect mediators when we have one that is so well qualified. And honestly, you know, if you're like me, that, that you can be prone to rely on other things to keep you in God's good graces other than Christ himself. You know, whether that's human priest or departed saints or the Virgin Mary or good behavior or charitable giving or amounts of Bible reading and prayer from that week or the number of evangelistic conversations you've had, we are all prone to fall back on lesser priests than the one that we have. But Hebrews 5 would seek to persuade us today that there's already a perfect priest who is perfectly qualified to go before God on our behalf such that it really makes no sense to fall back or to turn away to any other mediator when this one is, is so good. Now, verses 1 through 4 in our passage, these kind of give what you might call the basic job description or the essential qualification for anyone who wants to be a priest. And then verses 5 through 10 are going to unfold for us how Jesus perfectly and beautifully meets these qualifications for the job. And as we go along through this passage, I would actually like for us to stop along the way at a few different places and, and to pray together. We had a singing baby dedication, so we're going to have a praying uh, sermon today, I guess. And the, the reason for that is, you know, when you study a passage to prepare to teach it, you have to think about it a lot, and you have to pray about it a lot, and you have to, to pray about, how does this passage need to change me? What do I need to hear? What do I need to feel from, from reading this passage? And so this week, for me, this passage has spawned Three very specific prayers. Um, prayers of thanks and prayers asking for help um, from, from what this passage teaches us about, about Christ. So as we go, we'll take some breaks and, and we'll pray. Uh, so Hebrews 5, 1 through 4. Let's jump back again to verses 1 through 4 and see if you can pick up on these essential qualifications for a high priest. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, as Aaron was. 
So did you see some of these qualifications here? There's at least three, depending on how you count them. I'm going to count three. Uh, But the first thing is that a priest must be able to act on behalf of humans by offering gifts and sacrifices to God for sins. And this would make sense. I mean, a priest must bridge the gap between God and human sin. That's kind of the whole point of a priest in the first place. And then the second thing is that a priest must be able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he also is, is weak and, and human. We see this in verse 1 and verse 2, that the priest must be chosen from among men. So the priest can't be an alien or an angel or your pet alpaca or anything like that. Uh, he must be, I'm not sure if anyone actually has a pet alpaca, but he must be human and he must be beset with weakness. And this would make a lot of sense too, because you don't want the priest who represents the people to be constantly angry at the people who are bringing sacrifices. Oh, great, here comes Jim again. What a sinner. You know, this is the seventh sacrifice I've offered for this guy this week. What is his deal? You know, he, he has to have compassion and to care for the people who need, who need sacrifices. And then third, a priest must be appointed by God for the task. And we see that in verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself. So you can't volunteer to be a priest. And this also would make a lot of sense because you want to make sure that the guy who represents you before God was appointed by God so that you feel sure that God receives his priestly work on your behalf. So there's no sign-up genius slot that you can sign up to be a high priest and receive a confirmation email for your volunteerism. Uh, next semester, you will not see high priest on the list of study serve serve positions that you could have here at North Wake. High priesthood must be bestowed by God as was the case with Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first Israelite priest. His calling from God is recorded in a a few different places in the Old Testament, but let me just read one of them from Numbers chapter 18, verse 7. This is God speaking to Aaron. He says, And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar, and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So not only can you not volunteer to be a priest, but if you try to volunteer, you will die. So it's pretty important that the priest be appointed by God. So in what way does Jesus meet these essential qualifications? Do your mediators meet these essential qualifications? Well, our author is going to tell us, and he's going to actually work his way backwards through each of the qualifications that we just brought up, showing how Jesus... In his election, his compassion, and his perfection is totally qualified to be the divine human mediator. So what do I mean when I say Jesus is qualified by virtue of his election, his compassion, and his perfection? Well, uh, first of all, by his election, look back at verse 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so again, again, the idea is pretty straightforward that anyone who would mediate between God and mankind would need to be elected by God himself, and God chose Jesus. Uh, but what's not quite as straightforward at first is how the author of Hebrews goes about proving that Jesus was indeed appointed by God. Uh, he, he does this 
And of course, if, if his original readers were Jewish, they would have had great respect for the Old Testament scriptures. And so that's what he uses, two different Psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, to show that Jesus is this perfect and great high priest. Now, he's already quoted from Psalm 2, if you remember when we first started the book of Hebrews, at the very end of his introduction, he quotes Psalm 2. In Hebrews 1.5, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so now he's going to quote that psalm in tandem with Psalm 110 to show that the son who is superior to angels is also superior to the old covenant priest. And, and by the way, this has pretty massive implications for how the writer was reading these Old Testament psalms. You know, he read them as ultimately pointing to the Christ and that in these ancient passages, the father was speaking to and speaking about his son who had later come in history as, as the Messiah. And of course, when I read this passage, I'm thinking, how did, how did he learn to read the Old Testament like that? And the short answer is that he learned it from Jesus. There's an interesting uh, scenario in the Gospel of Matthew where, where Jesus asked the religious leaders of the day a trick question based on this same psalm, Psalm 110. And this is going to get quoted over and over in, in the book of Hebrews. So now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. I guess they were just as confused as we might be when we read that. But Jesus He's quoting from these very first, the very first verses of Psalm 110. If you were to look at it later, you would see where David writes this psalm, and the introduction says, The Lord said to my Lord. So what is going on here? If David calls the Messiah his Lord, how can the Messiah merely be his son? Well, this is a great question. The Messiah would have to be not just the son of David, but also the son of God who in this psalm has been appointed by the Father not just to be a, a king, but also to be a priest for mankind. And not a priest of the tribe of Levi, but a priest like Melchizedek. Uh, okay, Melchizedek what? Okay, Melchizedek. Uh, it is a name, and I know some of you are often looking for baby names at North Wake, so uh, that one is probably up for grabs. I guess you could always shorten it to Mel or Zed, or something. Uh, I, I don't know. Anyway, if you don't know who Melchizedek is, no big deal, because Hebrews chapter 7 is fully devoted to explaining to us who Melchizedek is and why Jesus can be a priest like Melchizedek and not come from the priestly tribe of Israel, of, of Levi. But I'm going to completely save that can of worms for Noah Joyner when he preaches in three weeks. So congratulations, Noah, if you listen to this while you're in the Dominican Republic. Uh, we like to save hard and odd jobs for him while he's gone, and then we assign them to him when he comes back. He's always very excited. But I, I don't think that the author's quotation of Psalm 110 here is really to say much about Melchizedek at this point. It's merely to make the case that Jesus has been verbally declared by God to be the final high priest, and therefore he's qualified 
in a way that really no one else in the world is. The point is simply this. God chooses the mediator between the divine and the human. You don't get to pick. I don't get to pick. God chooses. And he chose Jesus. And Jesus, even Jesus, did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but received it from the Father. And as I, as I spent time thinking about this section of the passage this week, um, what has struck me most about Jesus is his deep and remarkable humility. Just take a minute to, to stop and think about this, that Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, by becoming human, by dying on a cross for the sins of the world and being raised from the dead by the Father, he would become the central object of worship for all people from all nations. He would become the, the central, pivotal piece in human history. And yet he doesn't go after it to, to grasp it or take it for himself, but he's content to be appointed by the Father. And Jesus says much uh, the same thing himself in John's Gospel, chapter 8. He, he briefly says, if, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. And the more that I get to know the God of Scripture, the more that I am floored and generally convicted by his level of humility and willingness to not seek glory for himself, but to receive it from the Father. And this is just one of the amazingly beautiful things about the Christian Trinity, that God is not just a singular person trying to gobble up the worship of all the masses, although I guess as God, he would deserve that. But instead, God is a father who loves to honor his son. And God is a son who loves to glorify his father. And God is a spirit who loves to honor and glorify father and son. And that he is satisfied by bringing joy to another. And I have so much to learn from a God like this. I find him incredibly compelling and, and challenging. And there's a song that we have sung here a few times uh, by an artist named Audrey Assad. And uh, it's a song simply called Humble. And these lyrics have just been reverberating in my mind of, uh, as I've um, meditated on this passage. Humble and human, willing to bend you are. Fashioned of flesh in the fire of life you are. But not too proud to wear our skin, to know this weary world we're in. Humble, humble Jesus. You are humble. Make me humble like you. So let's stop here. This is the first of the prayers that, that God's been working in my heart this week. It's just to give thanks that God's appointed a mediator for me and then to pray that he would teach me his way of humility. So let's stop and let's pray this uh, together if we would. Father, I am thankful that you have elected, that you've appointed your son as our perfect high priest. And Lord Jesus, we, we look at you and see that you did not grasp this for yourself, but you were content to be appointed by the Father. And so I pray that you would teach us, teach us to take the low place this week in our homes, in our work, in our school, and, and even in our ministry, that we would not seek the applause of men or the esteem or admiration of, of our friends or family, but that, that we would be content to receive that from you. You who oppose the proud, but give grace 
to the humble. Make us humble like you. Amen. Okay, so we see that Jesus does meet the qualification for high priest by virtue of his election by God, and in doing so displayed remarkable humility. But what about the second qualification? Being able to deal with those of us who are ignorant and wayward, which is a lot of fun to put yourself in that category, but that's us, ignorant and wayward. How can Jesus, this great high priest who's exalted to heaven, how can he be said to understand weakness and to be expected to deal with us gently? Well, Jesus is qualified for this too, through his compassion or you might even say through his humanity. Uh, let's look back at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You know, in all of our attempts to be theologically orthodox and protect the truth that Jesus was fully divine, which is a good thing to do. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do. But I think we also have a tendency to forget or neglect the fact that Jesus was also fully, genuinely human. We, or at least I, seem to get the idea that while Jesus was on earth, his obedience to the Father was somehow effortless for him or automatic or just came naturally to him, you know, because he's God and he can do stuff like that. But obviously, it's, it's not as easy as, as it might seem at first that in Jesus' manhood, he offers up prayers with loud cries and tears. He stays up through the night many times in desperate prayer to the Father. He sweats great drops of blood in the garden as he stares down what obedience to the Father is going to mean for him. So Jesus knows the struggle to learn obedience to the Father in real time, real world experience. And so if you're like me, and you are on the struggle bus when it comes to trying to learn obedience to the Father, then take heart because Jesus knows. And because he's done it, he knows how to teach us. And he's, he's a good teacher. Now, I know some of you more curious types are probably wondering, wait a second. If Jesus had to learn obedience... Does that mean that he was somehow previously disobedient or morally imperfect? Because that's, that's weird. Uh, but this, this passage is not saying that at all. Uh, the author of Hebrews has already made it really clear that Jesus was without sin. So what does this mean that he learned obedience? Well, I think uh, John Piper puts it well and, and says this. He says, this, this verse does not mean that he moved from being disobedient to being obedient it means he moved from being untested to being tested and proven. He moved from obeying without any suffering to obeying through unspeakable suffering. It means that the gold of his natural purity was put in the crucible and melted down with white hot pain so that he could learn from experience what suffering is and prove that his purity would persevere. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
Um, Thomas Goodwin was a pastor in Great Britain in the 1600s, and he wrote a little book with a long title that was remarkably popular in his day called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And in this book, he made the case that there are two things in particular that pull the heartstrings of Christ towards his people. Their hardships and also, surprisingly, even their sins. And so, so as a man, Jesus experienced the full gamut of suffering. Rejection, abuse, loss, betrayal. And so when we suffer, Jesus feels for us. He feels what we feel even more closely or more deeply than your closest friend would feel for you. And then even almost miraculously regarding our sin, uh, this is, listen to what Goodwin wrote. He said, your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But his bowels, what we would call his gut, shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. What shall separate us from Christ's love? Now, it's not that our sin doesn't displease God or that he just overlooks it and it's no big deal. But for those who have made Jesus their high priest, he has already borne God's wrath against our sin. And so if you are under his high priestly ministry, then your sin moves him to act in love to free you from it and not merely to punish you for it. And again, if you're tempted to think that, yes, but Jesus can't possibly sympathize with me when I'm under the weight and guilt and shame because of my sin. I mean, he was sinless, right? And we would do well to remember the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, through no fault of his own, knows in a deep and mysterious way what it is to feel the weight of sin, to feel the weight of God's wrath against lies and adultery and greed and gossip and idolatry. Jesus knows better than you think what it's like to be smothered under the weight of sin. And so his heart goes out to his people when they are afflicted or when they are addicted to love and to help them. Uh, Damien Spiriket uh, wrote a moving sto uh, story from his life as a young man. He wrote, when I was in high school, my father passed away rather suddenly it was just two days before my high school graduation. At that time in my life, I was a baby Christian, immature and shallow. I was still drying off the baptistry waters. All I cared about was not going to hell. But then my dad died, and I found myself in a place I'd never been before. I wanted to hear God speak. I wanted to know what he had to say about the situation and how he was going to get me and my family through this difficult time. So I prayed, and I waited for God to speak. Then came the day of the funeral. The church was packed. I sat on the front pew with my mother and two younger sisters. 
The Lutheran priest spoke, but I don't remember what he said. I continued to wait for God to say something. Then the service was over. It was the tradition of this church to have the family line up in the foyer and everyone would file past us and offer words of condolences and encouragement. Tears were shed, hugs were offered, and words were given, but I don't remember what anybody said to me in that time. And I continued to wait for God to speak. And then I saw Kim O'Quinn. She was my age. We were in the youth group together. When she got to me, she didn't say a word. She had tears in her eyes, and she simply hugged me and walked off. But I heard God speak. It dawned on me just months before I had attended another funeral, the funeral for Kim O'Quinn's father. In that moment, she knew exactly what it meant to be me. And he goes on to write, If you want to hear God's voice in your life, look no further than the one who knows exactly what it's like to be you. He knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to be human. If you want to hear God's voice, allow your soul to be quieted long enough so that you can hear the one who is in the beginning say, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And when, when we suffer, isn't this what we really want? I mean, even more than, than answers and explanations for why we are suffering, we want someone who gets us, who understands what we are going through. And this is why support groups, you know, are always built around common suffering, like grief support for parents who have lost children or support groups for addictions of every stripe, support groups for divorcees, for military wives, for preschool moms, or pastors even. We all want to be heard and felt by someone who has been there. And John Calvin said it really well when he said that Jesus put on our feelings along with our flesh. Now, I'm not much of a poetry buff, but I do have a couple of favorite poems, and one of them was written by a British pastor in the aftermath of World War I. And the very last stanza of his poem uh, goes like this. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rose, but thou didst stumble to a throne. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And no other God has wounds, but thou alone. My friends, if, if there's any of you here who are considering Christianity and have not yet given yourself over to Christ, let me just say that there, there is no other God like this. There's no other God who has wounds like you and who has wounds like me. So let's stop here again and let's pray. And let's, this is just a prayer thanking Christ for his compassion for us and asking that he would teach us how to obey the Father, even when in our suffering and in our sin, it is, it is so difficult for us. So let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful that you've not only put on our flesh, but you have put on our, our feelings. And so when we suffer and when we sin, your heart is filled with compassion for us because you know what it's like to be one of us. And because you know, Lord, we pray that you would teach us to obey. Teach us to obey the Father, even when it runs so contrary 
to what is easiest or what we feel. You're a good and you're a gentle teacher, so teach us. Teach us to love and teach us to obey. Amen. Okay, so Jesus, by his election, by his compassion, he is well qualified to be our mediator. But there's uh, one more, and this is the very first requirement given back in verse 1 of our chapter, that a high priest must be able to deal with the sin gap between God and people. And for this, Jesus offers us his perfection. Uh, Look with me again at verses 9 and 10. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So being made perfect, what, what does that mean? Was he not already perfect? Uh, again, you might be tempted to think that this is somehow implying that Jesus was morally imperfect or impure, but our authors, again, already told us that that's not what he means. So, so what does he mean? I think quite simply reading through the passage in context, it means that Jesus, by coming as a man, suffering like one of us and suffering for each of us, became perfectly totally qualified to be the source of eternal salvation. And how did he do that? How did Jesus become the source of eternal salvation? Well, we saw this back back in verse 8. He learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So, so as a man, Jesus lived and learned obedience to the Father. And he achieved what no human, including our first parents, Adam and Eve, could ever do, and that is total obedience to God. And and once again, uh, as Protestants, this can, can be hard for us to think about because we make much of the idea that salvation is by grace, that it's not earned, that it's not merited. But we forget that in a very real sense, salvation is earned and it is merited. And before your heresy meters like explode in your head, let me finish saying what I mean here. Uh, the, the real question is not, you know, can salvation be earned? The question is, who can earn it? You? Me? Surely not. But Christ did. Christ could. And because of that, he freely offers it to us, to all who obey him. And to obey Jesus means to hold fast to him, to believe him, to consider him, to have confidence in him, to not turn away from him to any lesser mediators, because there is no priest like the priest we have. Uh, Bishop and author William Willimon tells him of an encounter that he once had with a dying woman. He said she was in the last stages of lung cancer, gasping day after day for breath. It was obvious that she was in great pain and exhausted from fighting. She clutched a crucifix daily, given to her by her grandmother when she was a girl, carved by a monk in Europe. It was a symbol of all that her Catholic faith meant to her. When I entered the room that afternoon, I could see that she was very near the end. Would you like me to pray for you? I asked. Would you like for me to summon a priest? And with her last ounce of energy, she held out the crucifix toward me, which depicted the body of Christ nailed to a cross. And she said, thank you, but I already have 
a priest. So when you reach your last day, who will be your priest? Do you have a priest who is qualified to bring you into God's presence? Is Jesus your high priest? And if the answer is no, then who or what is going to be qualified to stand before God on your behalf one day? And if your answer is yes, yes, he is my high priest, then let's hold fast to him. Let's enjoy the confidence and and assurance that he brings to us that we would stay in the Father's good graces, not because of our merits, but because of his. There is not another priest like this priest. So let's say say our final prayer together from these sections and just thanking, thanking Christ that he has become our great high priest and offers us the salvation that we could not earn. And then after we pray, we are simply going to worship this great high priest. And if, if you have recognized today that you have need of this mediator, Jesus, and you would like to talk with someone or ask questions, uh, our pastors and elders are, are always here as we sing at the front and around after the services to, to talk with you. So let's pray once more together and then we'll worship. Jesus, again, I I am just thankful that you have learned perfect obedience in ways that I never could and never have. And thank you that by your obedience, you became the source of eternal salvation. And so I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet come to that source, that they would obey your call today. Keep us, Lord, keep us from turning back to any other mediators who we would count upon to keep us in your grace and in your presence. Fill us with confidence today that we do have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for us. And it is through him we pray. Amen. Stand with us as we worship.